Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Commitment Matters. Wow, do we have a conversation for you today? Well, actually, we have part one of a two-part conversation I think you're really going to enjoy. It's a thick one, and it covers a lot of territory. But if you like to get down into the trenches on what's happening in government and the courts that can impact our business, well, buckle up, because today we're going on a ride with a great guest who knows of what he speaks. My guest today is David Friend, who some of you may remember from the TRID implementation days. You might know of David's work at the CFPB, but I'll bet you might not know that David is an attorney with over 20 years experience working with title and mortgage companies. He's been in the trenches, and I'll bet you didn't know to give him credit for that, for his time served. His work at the Bureau is probably more familiar to you. He drafted portions of the TILA-RESPA Integrated Mortgage Disclosures Rule, but he also worked on and with RESPA, TILA, and Federally Related Mortgage Regulations and the Title Insurance Claims Council. Surprised? Well, that's just the beginning. I won't try to list all the things we cover. There's just too much good stuff. So I'll just get out of the way and let you get to it. Please enjoy my conversation with the warm, the insightful, the highly knowledgeable, the, is it just me or does he look a little bit like Jason Bateman? Mr. David Friend. David, welcome to Commitment Matters. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Mary, for having me. We have a lot of ground to cover, so I hope you wore your tennis shoes because we're going to run hither to post today. I'd like to start off talking about the Bureau specifically, and we have some cases that we're watching, one specifically out of the Fifth Circuit that has to do with payday lending. And I know people have heard a lot about this or maybe have read some, but are not quite understanding really the point of what's going on here. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the payday payday rule and, and, and what's go, been going on with payday lending has been a saga from the Bureau since its inception. Uh, it's back and forth into the courts, out of the courts, a proposal, a, a final rule, a, a change, and another rule, a, a retraction. I mean, it itself is a, a saga that has something that the Bureau has worked on, and various people in the Bureau have cycled in and out of, of working on that rule. What to me is notable about that is, unlike mortgage and a lot of other areas of financial services, payday lending had not been subject to much regulation prior to the adoption of Dodd-Frank. And so, you know, I, I could go into a little bit more detail, but overall, I, I think what's important to know is that this industry is extreme, has been extremely reluctant to be regulated. And it notably has had very successful lobbying efforts in, the state, in, in various state jurisdictions and various state houses. So basically, it, it was an ongoing part of this ongoing fight that and somebody basically brought up a theory that has been kicking around off and on since the Bureau was even thought about, that there could be an appropriations clause argument to say that since Congress cannot directly change the budget of the CFPB, then it violates congressional authority for the CFPB and the Federal Reserve to set the CFPB's budget every year. And basically, this is what the Fifth Circuit basically accepted uh, as an argument, that this is this is constitutionally invalid and therefore the agency doesn't exist, uh, you know, isn't properly funded and therefore can't do it, can't exist. 
so that's that's really kind of the basic synopsis I can give for what the Fifth Circuit's reasoning was and why that's an ongoing issue that that's winding its way through the courts. And you know, the CFPB filed a petition to the Supreme Court to review that Fifth Circuit case. Well, I'm old enough to remember when Dodd-Frank was, as it was being constructed, Congress expressly detailed their thoughts at the time about why they wanted the funding to happen the way it is currently set up. And Rich Horn and I have talked about this. He was a guest on the show recently. We talked a little bit about that. But one thing I think that people don't appreciate, maybe maybe some folks who just are in the habit of tussling with the CFPB over things, I think a lot of people don't understand that this would not only pertain if the Fifth Circuit is what holds, this would not just pertain to the CFPB because the CFPB isn't the only entity with funding like this, right? They're not a carve out in and of themselves. That's right. There, there, are, there are many other financial regulators who don't have a kind of direct congressional appropriation model. Um, some of them are based on fees like the FDIC. Some of them are based on, on other methods of funding. In the CFPB's case, the, what I would note is that there, this isn't something where Congress set up something where there isn't CFPB can acquire as much money as it wants to do whatever it wants. There's a cap based on the percentage of the Federal Reserve's budget because the CFPB is considered a sub-agency or within the the ambit of the Federal Reserve System statutorily. So it's not like it's it's over and there's there's nothing there. And part of that debate is not just the CFPB, it's the Federal Reserve, which doesn't have a line item in the budget necessarily for for things. And there are many other agencies that this could be this could be an, an implication towards. So I, I think that's that's kind of something that has been concerning, just not just because whatever you think about the CFPB's regulation, whether it's right or it's wrong, that changes and administrations change and regulations change along with those administrations. But some of the fundamental things could be you know, completely taken away. You might not be able to rely on something that the CFPB has said about how it thinks about a particular regulation. This could have a much broader impact than just, oh, payday rule. Let's let's you know, <laughs> let's continue that battle. And let's even if you don't think that payday lending should be regulated, this case could be a lot broader than just that. Right, and I love how you said that because I think some people want to kind of not pay attention to this case because it's payday lending. And if you're in the title settlement world or the real estate world, or even, you know, the mortgage lending world, you get, well, that doesn't pertain to us. So what, but it has a much broader purpose and point than simply dealing with payday lending. Right. I mean, it, it could be, it could be much broader. It could, if that fifth circuit reasoning is is followed as it goes up to the Supreme Court, then the result is basically invalidating everything the CFPB has ever done. Because it never had the proper funding. And so uh, there, there are, I'm sure that in industry, there are some people that would cheer that and that would say, oh, yes, of course, that would be great because then we could just do what we used to do. Yeah, not, not really, unfortunately. Regulations like Reg Z and Reg X 
are based on statutory requirements in TILA, RESPA, and a whole host of other alphabet soup type of type of acronyms that we deal with on a regular basis, or we dealt with on a regular basis in the in the bureau. And so, this industry still has to follow the statutes, right? Mm-hmm. But without clarifications and modifications that have been made in Reg Z and Reg X since 1968, over time, there are questions that were answered in regulation that you go to the statute and there's nothing in the statute. There's mm-hmm. Part of my job was to try to find things right. in the statute that make, would clarify, make clarify these things. Yeah, we, we couldn't find them. And it wasn't just me. It was other attorneys, some much mm-hmm. better than I am. So for a portion of the statutory requirements, prior regulation might suffice. Like what's a finance charge, APR calculations, things right. like that. But that's limited to what existed before. And I think sometimes what's not appreciated is that Dodd-Frank added a whole host of other requirements for which there would be absolutely no guidance, no, mm-hmm. nothing to fall back on other than the statutory language. And so that's, that's a challenge. That would be a definite challenge. <laughs> You've understated that. And I have come to understand the principle behind some of these challenges, which is, I think, ultimately, in fairness, <laughs> a good reading of that argument goes like this. Congress stopped legislating and the administrative branch and the judicial branch have been picking up the pieces ever since and trying to put legs and teeth into what Congress passed. And that's not really the executive branch's job or the court's job. Uh, we are trying to force Congress to get back to thorough lawmaking again And whether people agree or disagree with that, I think the baby that gets kind of caught up in that bathwater is, okay, but practically, (laughs) what what would all this mean? Practically, how do you undo these things? I would say that you can't expect, I mean, nobody can really expect Congress to legislate everything. No. And to do so would be, I mean, I, I could go into... I could go into why that's not a really good idea from the fact that you basically have volunteer staffers who are barely out of college, who are, are, are doing most of the most of the work on the Hill. You've got a lot of, for want of a better term, uh, nepotism, where the people that are hired to be on the staff are, you know, the sons and daughters of donors who need a, need a gig for the summer. And that's the way Congress basically staffs things. I don't know that Congress has the bandwidth to do the type of in-depth kind of analysis and figuring out, okay, where, you know, where is this going to go on the form? Where is that going to go on the form? And really, really, I mean, I'm, I'm shivering at the thought. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I mean, you'd shiver more if you talk to some of the people on the Hill when they're trying to put together statutes and regulation, statutory language. So it's, it's something where, Ideally, Congress would pass laws that are that are perfect, and that's just not the way that Congress works. Right. And Congress themselves says, listen, our, the best we can do is give a framework with a few specific hot buttons we're going to we're going to be put in black and white. And other than that, ah, figured yeah. out. Yeah. And from a practical standpoint, even if you take the individual federal agencies out of it, OK, you don't have federal agencies interpreting it. Who's going to be interpreting it? The courts. Mm hmm. The individual judges mm-hmm. who have variable 
experience on per, on things. And the plaintiff's bar would be happy to help, I'm sure. Oh, the plaintiff's bar would be happy to help. The only thing is, is that something that's good for one particular plaintiff isn't necessarily the best argument for another particular mm-hmm, plaintiff mm-hmm. or defendant for that. Or defendant for that matter. Good point. Exactly. So it's something where there would be a lot of confusion because uh, I don't know if you've ever read a U.S. District Court opinion. Mm-hmm. There are some wonderful judges out there, but there mm-hmm. are also some judges whose literary style is not exactly illuminating. Uh, <laughs> you can have, yes, you can well have judicial decisions that you can read them 17 times and you know, every, every time afterwards you go, Oh, well, I've got it now. Yeah. <laughs> I figured yes. it out now. I have had that experience. You're right. Yeah. And, and nope. That's not the way it goes. Go back and forth to that same judge, and James says, "No, that's not what I said." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it would be extremely messy. It's also something where you know rulemaking itself. I've seen the sausage made and how long and how how, how difficult that can be yeah. to coordinate everything to get everything into place. It's tedious. It takes years, a couple years, right? Now imagine that with courts. And so you've seen cases go through, and it's an open question whether this is the right answer or this is the wrong answer. Okay, you go through with one case, with one set of facts, and it takes three to five years, right? Great. And you solve that it, it, little it, tiny slice of a question. And in that particular fact scenario. Yes. So if you, go, if you change the facts. Here we go again. Who knows if that is sufficient? One of the things is without something like a regulator – it's going to be extremely, extremely uncertain with a lot of things. And things are not going to get clarified quickly if you rely on, on judicial decisions on what, what something means. Yeah. Well, and is there a point to be made? And if there is, you may or may not want to make it. But is there a point to be made about the consistency of the agencies and bureaus that Business is always wanting assuredness and certainty, right? And I'm still devil's argument with you here. But if, let's say, executive, administrative structure kind of stays in place and and all of that kind of remains similar with things under there, but it could swing wildly when the White House changes hands, right? When the executive branch mm-hmm. changes hands, and then the certainty that business and consumers rely on, we wouldn't have that, right? Because it Mm -hmm. could just be interpreted wildly differently every time the administration changed hands. And I think you experienced a little bit of that. Yeah, I experienced a little bit of that. But even if you have a change in administration, to some extent, the the administration can't just come in and say, oh, well, you know, all those rules go out. Never mind. I can't. uh, Don't follow that. Just don't just ignore it. And Part of that is is courts, uh, especially the D.C. Circuit over years, has valued that agencies keep consistent, right? That they're not wildly changing things just because there was a presidential administration change. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that sh- things can't change. Things mm-hmm. can, can change. Mm-hmm. But part of the Administrative Procedures Act and everything that, that is in place is intended to give people a heads up as much as possible give them a, an opportunity to participate in whatever's going to change. Mm-hmm. And then when the agency makes a change, it has to articulate its reasons. It has to lay it out in black and white. Okay, we're doing it this way, and this is why we're doing it. And you can agree with us or disagree with us, but that's that's the rationale. 
And then, of course, people can sue and people can take it to court and say, oh, no, you didn't consider this other option. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And so it's something where part of the reason it takes so long with rules and regulations is that people are trying to make sure that they can defend the regulation, that they can make it clear to what has happened. And it isn't just a surprise that, that all of a sudden this, this pops in, at least from financial services. It's, it's different in different areas of law. But as, but as far as financial regulation goes, it's not something that happens quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure no one was surprised to see this case coming out of the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit delivers us lots of of headlines, and they're very interesting to follow. But I've heard that maybe there are some other courts that don't share the same or didn't come to the same conclusion that the Fifth Circuit did. What do you know about those? The Second Circuit actually dealt with a case fairly recently, like within the last month or two, and basically came to the exact opposite conclusion. It came to the conclusion that the CFPB is the funding mechanism is constitutional, that basically one of the tests that the courts have always used is that uh, Congress, when it's making its appropriations, it doesn't have to say, okay, spend $10 on this, $10. It has to convey what what is called an articulable principle that guides the allocation of the funds. So it doesn't have to be precisely line item budgeting. It, it, It can be a little bit more general. And the judge in that case, conservative, it's you know, not somebody who is considered to be just an appoint, a Democratic appointee or anything. It was actually a Republican appointee who's conservative. And the judge basically uh, reviewed it and said that he saw this articulable principle, reviewed the Fifth Circuit's decision, and basically said that the opinion is – the conclusion of, of the Fifth Circuit's opinion – is this inconsistent with the Constitution and applicable Supreme Court precedents? So it's something where an, another judge looked at the same statute, looked at the same legislative history, looked at the same provisions, and said, no, this, this meets the test that we have adhered to for decades to determine whether a congressional appropriation was appropriate. So what that does is it creates a circuit split. So the, the the Second Circuit has said, nope, this is this funding mechanism is fine. It meets all constitutional requirements, meets all Supreme Court precedents when we're testing congressional appropriations. And nope, it, it, it's constitutional. The other one says, no, it's not constitutional because, you know, the CFPB could come up with some crazy number, even if it is capped. So what that does is it creates a circuit split. And that increases the chances that the Supreme Court will take this up. And try to make a kind of a, a definitive conclusion on this particular point, yeah, which has been knocking around since the Dodd Frank Act was passed. I know that people probably, many people would probably like to, since we have a circuit split, and since they are completely, literally, one hundred percent opposite corners on this. I know some people would want to say, "All right, wake me up when this gets decided. Let me know how it comes out." And tell me what to do. So why should people be paying attention to this and, and watching these things go through and, and resolve? Well, I mean, if you're going to go with the Fifth Circuit's reasoning and basically the CFPB, nope, doesn't pass constitutional muster because it was, isn't properly appropriated by Congress. Uh, what that does is you can't separate out things that you like from what the Bureau did from things that you don't like. Everything's gone, basically. All the rules are gone. Every, everything's out. Okay. I just had a stroke hearing that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And so what that means is that a, a lot of things that there are some things in the rules that you can argue one way or another, but a decision was made and a decision was made, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. And because of that decision, a lot of things that that particular question having that answer it resolves. I mean, it resolves a lot of, you can have one question and it can resolve five or six or seven or eight different things in the regulation. And so now, well, that's gone. So you've got the debate. Well, which way does, is it? You know, what's the answer to this question? Mm-hmm. And that, that can go a lot of different directions. And especially because in Dodd-Frank, there are a lot of provisions that people don't realize weren't in Teela or, or RESPA before mm-hmm. that were added. Do you um, want to name a couple just for, for <laughs> to, to bring the point home or should they just trust you on that one? Well, I mean, we talked about it. We, we, the Bureau talked about it in its rules, especially, I mean, I mean, TRID is where I'm going to kind of give examples because it's, yeah. it's, it, it's got so many examples that, that, yes. that you can utilize. Yeah. But what I'm really thinking about are the Title 14 disclosures is what they, they were called. Mm-hmm. And they were basically a bunch of, bunch of provisions that were lingering around bills that were proposed for financial services well before Dodd-Frank, just kind of sitting on the shelf. And they were added into Dodd-Frank. And these relate to disclosing negative amortization features, anti-deficiency protections, credit or partial payments policies, some additional escrow-related information, including escrow waivers, monthly payments, aggregate amounts of settlement costs, approximate rate, approximate amount of the wholesale rate of funds, Mm -hmm. the aggregate amount of originator fees with amounts paid by the creditor and consumer as individual little disclosures, total interest paid as a percentage of the principal and appraisal management company fees. Yeah. So these, these all were part of title 14 and they were things that Congress said, Oh, this should be added to disclosures or this should be addressed. And so I'll just use the last one in this example, the appraisal management company mm-hmm. fees. There's a provision in Dodd-Frank that, that added to RESPA that basically because appraisal management company fees were something that were you know, kind of debated back and forth, the CFPB may include disclosures related to appraisal management company fees in the disclosures. And there was, you know, one of the things that was debated at the time was what does the word may mean? Does it mean that it must be included in these new disclosures? That it could be, but it wasn't going to be required? Or is it something that the CFPB could just say, uh, we're trying to simplify this. Why are we going to add this to, to, to the disclosures? Mm-hmm. And the CFPB reasoned that the word may made the inclusion of the AMC fee portion of, of, of an appraisal charge as something that could be included by the Bureau on the combined forms, but wasn't required to be. It could be included by the Bureau or it could be omitted by the Bureau. So because of the word may, it's completely rational for us to say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't have to be on there. Congress gave us the authority, but it's up to us whether it's up to the Bureau, whether that gets included on the forms or not. Yeah. Whether that makes sense to do. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of Congress going, we're not sure, but if you think this should happen, you have permission to do so. Right. But because the the statute just has the word may some people could say, well, no, you're really going against the word of Congress. So in other words, there could You're be a You're overreaching. 
You yes. chose May to mean yes. Exactly. So yeah. so it's it's something where there's a there's a debate mm-hmm. and reasonable people can disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. That, that's that's something that I think is something that people tend to forget today for some reason. Well, I was going to say, we used to be able to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, uh, there was a lot of debate and a lot of discussion, mm-hmm. questions of along the lines of, well, if a so let's say a consumer knows that there is an appraisal management company fee, but it doesn't change the appraisal charge. Is that going to change consumer behavior at all? Right. What, what information, what is the consumer going to do with this information? And it's like, yeah. There's so much information that the consumer is trying to absorb and do through a residential real estate transaction. That's right, David. More is that does, going more to change? Does it mean better information, David? Right. right I've right. said those words to you before, haven't and I? Yes, and I believe there are words to the effect in the uh, trid rule that there's a term of art that's used. It's called information overload, which is mm-hmm. something that federal regulators have been worried about for a long time, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it's something that we did our the bureau did its best to try to try to address for example you're you're not going to find what was it the, the wholesale rate of funds mm-hmm. that's not you're not going to find that on any le or cd for right. example right so basically my point just bringing this all the way back mm-hmm. so my point here is that somebody could say that it's controversial that you do not include on your loan estimate or your closing disclosure how much the appraisal management company got from the appraisal fee. And so you, Mr., you know, you as the creditor, you as, as, as the settlement company, well, what, what are you going to do if you don't know whether a particular court is going to accept the, the argument that the appraisal management company fee doesn't need to be on these, on these forms? <laughs> Let's think about it this way. Yeah. What is going to be the safest? What is the least risk to the, corporate, to the, to the creditor or to the settlement agent if there's a question of whether the AMC fee should be on the forms, the answer is going to be, you're going to put down the AMC fee. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to open up your forms and open up your processes to, number one, figure out how to obtain that information. Number two, mm-hmm. how to add it into the disclosure, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And make sure if it changes year over year, you recalculate and have a good explanation for why the people that were charged the fee this year were charged a different fee last year. And if your mix of borrowers <laughs> and is if, different, and if, oh, now yeah, we're off to the races. Yeah, I, well, I mean, is that evidence of a potential RESPA 8 violation? Could be. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, so I think this, just even this back and forth is helping people understand the real-time Serious questions that you don't necessarily stop and think about when you're simply having a principal policy argument. When you're mm-hmm. down here in the weeds like this, there are many ramifications. Right, right. And, and they could seem small, but then at one point I tried to count how many individual disclosures were on the loan estimate and the closing disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I threw my hands up when I got to 98 <laughs> at one point. They're doing um, a lot of work. They really yes. are. Yes. And what people don't realize is that each one of the line items, basically, one of the things that we had to do was we had to go back and we had to look at the forms and and, and relate them back to particular statutory requirements. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, or when we did that at the Bureau, there were a couple of things that we couldn't find any statutory basis. But one of them is the loan amount. 
<laughs> no requirement to put the loan amount on in on the the big primary loan disclosure, folks. Right, right. So so you don't have to put any mortgage amount on any any of the disclosures. I don't know about you, but I, I would think that industry would continue to do so because of the utility seems to be rather low when you don't even have the that loan. That doesn't sound like CFPB overreach to me, David. <laughs> I think you're But no, but that's a perfect that's a brilliant example. No, it it's not in a requirement anywhere. And yet Somebody and needs to put some common sense to this. You you would think that the just basically, you know, how much money you're borrowing would be something that you'd want on the form. Ideally, yeah. So this is something that, you know, when you get to the nitty gritty and you get down into it and you get down into the weeds, mm-hmm. there are a lot of little questions that, you know, I'd say that I could sit here and I could have, you know, wonderful policy debates over which one would be the absolute optimal result. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's an answer to the question. It's no longer something that is a friction. There's no so, no longer something where somebody has to go to their compliance department and say, hey, you know, how, I'm reading it this way. Why, why don't we do it this way? And the compliance department goes, well, I've got no guidance here. Right. If you don't have it there, some court could come up with a different decision in three years, five years for time from now. And what does that mean for not just the loans that are originated, but the loans that are in the secondary market that people are going to be reviewing, right? Is there something that a court decides, some court somewhere whose clerk really isn't, really doesn't know how the secondary market works at all, and all of a sudden you have a lot of questions about existing mortgages and, and, and issues associated with their, with their TILA compliance. Yeah. Well, and you think interest rate hike of three quarters of a percent throws cold water on the market what do you think something like that would do? I think what it is is that the mortgage market is really, really works in reverse. So a lot of the decisions are made on the secondary market to make sure that the money keeps on flowing to the bondholders. If you destroy that cash flow to the bondholders, then it makes the investment a lot less attractive mm-hmm. on the market. When it's less attractive, then the prices start going down. When the prices start, it doesn't lead to good places. And so things that that affect kind of affect the value of those bonds and affect the confidence that people have in the market that when you have got a mortgage that's been originated, it checks all the boxes, nobody has to worry about it. Nobody has to think about it. Nobody has to kind of go, you know, I'm not really sure if they did this right or they did that right. So it's it's something that could be disruptive. And it's something where it might seem good in the immediate sense, but in the end, not everybody's going to be playing with the same with the same rules. Right. Yeah. And once that starts introducing, then the risk analysis is going to change quite a, quite a bit. If the Fifth Circuit is what SCOTUS aligns with and everything the Bureau has done becomes unconstitutional, what? I guess we'd still have RESPA and TILA, but we wouldn't have a lot of those other things. It just sounds like there'd be sort of maybe like a question mark above everything. I mean, QM, QR... I, would it go that far down, David, really? If you read the statute, it just says qualified mortgage. There's Congress didn't set up any particular criteria. It said, well, these things could be considered. Yeah. And you could do a DTI test or you don't have to. You can do something else. And of course, the, the Bureau has gone from you know, setting up a DTI test to coming up with something that is based on APOR for your QM requirements. Mm-hmm. Well, that would that goes because that was a that was a created by the CFPB. It wasn't set up by Congress, mm-hmm. and so those definitional requirements go away. Right, and the definitional requirements for something as simple as how do you calculate income 
I can't tell you how many how many debates oh. we had over whether something it constitutes income. There's a lot of things about well, what is income, right? Right. Well, it, it seems simple. You know, it's any money you receive. Well, not quite, because if you think if you go into the self-employed context, right? Mm-hmm. Is all income you get from self-employment income to you? Heck no. No. Right? Right. Because that income is subject to the claims of debts against the business, right? Mm-hmm. So you get into kind of a debate over accounting, right? Mm-hmm. So do you expect all small businesses to have gap accounting? Right. No. No. No, you, of course no, not. No, you don't because it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense for somebody right. who's who's doing kind of certain certain types of work to invest in the type of accounting systems and accounting checks and controls that you would expect in any in any big company. But when you're calculating income for, to determine whether somebody has the ability to repay, mm-hmm. how do you distinguish the income that you get from a s- small business that doesn't have a separate set of books from you individually from income that you would receive that you could use to repay your mortgage? Right. And it's, it seems like a simple question until you start thinking about particular mm-hmm. scenarios and you start mm-hmm. talking about those scenarios and you go, wait a second. Well, and then you're, even then you're not very far from, well, 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 backing down, right back down to stated income, stated asset loans. Exactly. And here we go again. <laughs> right? Exactly. Did you like riding out 2008 and the, for a lot of markets, decade that happened after that? No. No, no. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, you could argue about, okay, well, what, what is, you know, what the regulation did and what the regulation, regulation cost. Mm-hmm. Especially with like trade, you know, we re- I would read the numbers, I'd read the numbers, and then it's like, well, yes, it, it it costs a little bit more, but if there's a quarter point bump in the Federal Reserve rate, the costs go up much more than that, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's something where Congress passed the law, we had to figure out how to in- implement the law, and so we did that. It did cost some, you know, it cost money for everyone to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But after that's done, you have a system that works and the system that on the, on the whole works, of course. Yes. Always, there's always going to be imperfections that you have to address. In any system. Yeah. Right. But by and large, it it, it works fairly effectively to provide mortgage mortgages to a good percentage of Americans. There's always improvements that can be made. But now let's throw it all out. <laughs> let's throw it all out and let's 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 see what happens from here. Yeah, it, it, everything what will be fine. What could go wrong? It's not like we had any recent example of anything going wrong in this arena. So it'll probably be fine, David. I don't I wouldn't worry about it. And you graciously talked us through some of the some of the things that our industry brushes alongside or watches from afar that impacts us, but uh, let's bring it right down now if we could to Again, if the bureau's funding and structure is found to be unconstitutional, what does it mean for TRID? Do we do we lose the LE, do, the CD? Do we what? Paint that picture for me, if you would. There would be nothing stopping somebody from coming out with another form that meets all of the statutory requirements that would have all the information. The, the timing would go to the to the to the statutory requirements, which 
you're still going to have the 373 rule under uh, TILA based on APR changes and things like that. So it, it, it's something that, that you would still have the basic structure from a statutory perspective, but a lot of the questions of what's on the form, how it's displayed, all of that, all of that would just come up. All of that now, nonsense. I, because yeah, TILA and RESPA would still be there. There would still be the requirement in Dodd-Frank to harmonize them into a single disclosure, which I know people can argue that the LE and the CD are not a single disclosure, but <laughs> I challenge anybody well, to, I, 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 I mean, you got as close as you could, I think. I, I mean, I mean, it, the the only way to get a to, to get a single disclosure is to guarantee the APR and all the costs when you right. provide the 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 LE. Which would you say that again, please? Because I don't think people understand that. You would have to guarantee mm. APR and a lot of mm-hmm. things at the stage you were providing the LE. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. now there are some variations in APR, but it's like a, a eighth of a percent. And when you're talking and about everything else has to be and lo- on lock. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and it's, it's I some- am old enough to remember when we were arguing vociferously, that's not viable. And you guys said, you're right. It's not. The Bureau said, yeah, excuse well, me. The Bureau said, you're well, right. It's not. We get that. We we all wish it, it could be. We do. Well, but it's just well, well there. Well, just like any other large organization, there isn't one particular one particular way that anybody thought about TRID back when it was being put together. I do remember one of the the policy provisions and one of the policy ideas that was pushed was for a guarantee at the time of the loan estimate, rate, terms, costs, mm-hmm. all of I it. Do too. All of it yep. had to be fixed. Yep. And so that seemed to fly in the face of a lot of us who have, a, who have industry experience to think about what the industry would have to do to come up with those types of guarantees and those types of, of, of things. And especially given the fact that the Bureau at the time was also looking at regulations to change origination, this origination right. standards, like with ATRQM, there was another faction at the Bureau saying, wait a second, what we are going to have to do to put ATRQM, servicing rules, integrated disclosures, every, if you look at the totality of what we have to do, if you start off with a guarantee, that that's just making it all that much more complicated and challenging for the Bureau to do. Now, I mean, that's this is kind of how the sausage gets made. There's debates, there's questions, there's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. What the Bureau eventually did was say, let's take the existing tolerance regime that HUD had came up with and see if we can use that to kind of improve things. So that that's basically where those things come from. They don't come from like one person saying this is the way it it, it happens. There there right. are debates and sure. pros and cons. And you have to come up with, okay, these are the pros, these are the cons for each mm-hmm. each thing. And then somebody who's in a position of authority gets to make those decisions. And then then what we do, or what we did, was take those decisions and then write everything up. So I will say, having been in those rooms on occasion, you were very receptive to, we all want a practical, workable solution here. And when industry on a couple of things said, this is absolutely unworkable, and that's a perfect example, you guys were largely sensitive to that. And I think that went a long way toward the smooth TRID implementation that I think was universally experienced. I'm sure there's, I didn't hear any 
deaths due to TRID being implemented. So I think largely we did okay there. I've been through the cycle a couple of times because I was at HUD when when that tolerance regime was put in place and smoothness, the CFPB was a lot smoother than, than what HUD did. And I, I think that was, there were a few of us there who, who, who learned the lesson, who took lessons right. from HUD and kind of brought them up whenever we could in appropriate things to say, okay, well, that's, that's all well and good, but how does that get implemented? And so that, that was something that I'm kind of very happy that we were able to do as far as the implementation phase. Yeah, yeah, it mattered. And now, listen, first I owe you a caveat that you haven't heard from me before, which is, you know, I do a lot of teaching and instructing out in the marketplaces and not, not so much with consumers, but a lot of people new to industry who ha- have no experience with either a 1974 HUD or the three-page HUD or and have never seen a CDF never done a mortgage loan application, blah, blah, blah. And I walk them through. And and the reason I still teach, um, certainly the three-page HUD one is because those are still used on certain set of transactions. But, and sorry if this sounds brattish, but ever since, well, excuse me, during the TRID implementation period, it was even before go live. I used to amuse myself by taking to, and when I was teaching TRID, to realtors and lenders and title and settlement agents, I would take a three-page HUD-1 and a CDF, closing disclosure form, and I'd say, okay, you tell me which is clearer, easier to understand. And you know the what everybody thought the answer to that would be. Everybody in industry thought everybody would say, oh, that three-page HUD, I get that, I know what that means. Only industry people who work on those forms thought so. When you put the three-page HUD one and the CD in front of people who maybe have bought one home or haven't bought any homes or don't live in the soup we live in to a person, they say the closing disclosure form, gives them more information, is more helpful, and is the form that they would want to close on. I'm happy to hear that. And I'm happy to hear that because it's completely consistent with all of the... The testing? The testing that we did, all of the quantitative and qualitative testing that we did after we got the forms together. And even then there were improvements that need to be needed to be made because of towards the end, we were doing Spanish language testing and we were also trying to simplify the forms for transactions without sellers. And so some of the complications can be reduced when you, when you have, when you look at it through the lens of particular transaction types. And so that that was something I was I was happy we did. And I, I'm happy that a lot of our efforts ended up with forms that are much more understandable to consumers, because that was the charge that Congress gave us, which Correct. was to make it better for consumers. And so the old three-page HUD one was what I learned how to do real estate closings with. Mm-hmm. I could take the numbers, I could move them around, I could, oh, yeah. somebody has you an objection, you can sing. make, yes, exactly, yeah. you can make the numbers dance if you wanted to. Yes. And so it was good for that part, but consumers couldn't understand it. They didn't understand what product they were buying or how they were buying it. Yeah. And, and, and quite frankly, if I looked at a, a HUD-1 from you know, a few counties over, the entries were, were completely foreign. And yep. so there was a lot of non-standard approaches or non, non-uniform approaches that could lend to a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstandings. And, you know, it's the HUD-1, and the HUD-1 was created by HUD for the purpose of 
FHA insurance determinations. That's that's what it was for. It wasn't you for got one job, else. Rodney. <laughs> Just one job. <laughs> so so it's it's I mean, I could go through and say, okay, well, why does the calculating cash to close table on the on the loan estimate and the closing disclosure differ from how you calculate like down payments and everything else on the 1003? And what it is is that the 1003 is calculating it for the purposes of down payment down payment minimums from the secondary market or from HUD. And so mm-hmm. those calculations are different than I'm a consumer, I'm trying to figure out how much money I'm putting down and how much money I'm borrowing. It's a completely different calculation than, okay, FHA requires 3.5%, but the 3.5% down payment, you're going to have to back out the seller credits. You're going to have to back out this. You're going to have to follow the rules for seller points and things like that. So it's not something that is as intuitive to consumers. So when we developed the, the loan estimate and the closing disclosure, the focus on the calculation calculating cash to close table is how do we put those categories together so a consumer can understand them and have the math actually add up? And that was the challenge. Uh, sorry, everybody. Just when the conversation is headed toward a discussion of why title insurance premium is disclosed the way it is on the LE and the CD, just as you are reaching for your pitchfork to spear David once again on this topic, and he did take a lot of grief from us back in the trid days, didn't he? We're going to have to end part one here, and we'll pick it up for you next time. I promise you, we'll cover that next time, plus a lot more. So until then, if you hear things that you'd like to know more about, just link out to us via the show notes and let us know what you'd like to hear more about. And the same holds true if we aren't covering something you'd like to know more about, just let us know. We'd love to do more episodes based on your requests for guests or topics. And always, always, always remember, the time you spend here listening to experts share their knowledge about what it is you do, well, it's time well invested because it helps you do what you do. And what you do really matters. <laughs>